In Lebanon, they say kullun yani kullun, which means all of them means all of them, right? In Iraq, it's the same. We are against muhasasa, the political system. So this is a response to elite bargains. This is a response to these political settlements by the people who have diagnosed the problem head on. They're the ones who have figured it out. They've said it's not a party. It's not an ideology that we're against. It's not a sect or ethnicity. It's the elite. Welcome to Babel, translating the Middle East a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babbel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. As the world's attention has focused on Gaza, we would do well to think about how the conflict is settled, on what terms, and with whom. A recent CSIS program excerpted here gives us some material to work with. For more than a decade, Western governments have been trying to get out of the business of imposing Western solutions on Middle Eastern problems. To do so, they often try to resolve disputes by working with elites, with business people, tribal leaders, and others with power. A recent Chatham House report argues that these kinds of settlements haven't actually resolved conflict. Instead, they've prioritized stability over accountability and they've left citizens to pay the price of corruption and inequality. In this special episode of Babel, you'll hear excerpts from my recent discussion with Chatham House experts Renad Mansour and Faria al-Muslimi, as well as CSS Senior Fellow Natasha Hall, as we discuss how this phenomenon has played out in Iraq, Lebanon, and Libya, and the potential way forward. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. I'm delighted to welcome you today for a discussion about a recent Chatham House study, Rethinking Political Settlements in the Middle East and North Africa. To discuss that study, we're joined by one of its authors, Dr. Renad Mansour, Senior Research Fellow and Project Director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House. We're also joined by Fareh al-Muslimi, a research fellow at Chatham House's Middle East and North Africa program, where he focuses on Yemen and the wider Gulf region. We're also joined by my friend and colleague, Natasha Hall, a senior fellow with the Middle East program at CSAS for more than three years. So, Renette, tell us about this study. What were you trying to do and what were the principal things that you found? Sure. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Myself and a few colleagues have been studying some countries in the Middle East and North Africa, Iraq, Lebanon, Libya, and we were kind of working in this space of stabilization. And we found that it was predicated on a sort of trade-off. That trade-off was stability at the expense of accountability. Because there's a civil war, you have, you know, militias, armed groups shooting at each other. Let's bring all of the elites together onto the table and let's negotiate a peace. So the guys with guns (laughs) are the ones who are brought into the room. Yes, with the politicians, with social leaders, because previously liberal peace building, this idea that elections could bring democracy really wasn't working out. So there was, we need to sort of take a more pragmatic approach. Let's bring all the elites together and let's have them carve out what they can get. And it worked in stopping civil wars in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Libya, in, in the countries that we were looking at. It proved sort of useful for stability, but it also entrenched tremendously corrupt systems because these elites carved out the spoils of the state. Ultimately, this created, in the medium term, destabilizing factors. 
And we saw corruption in the medical sector in Iraq, for example, meaning that 70 to 80 percent of medicine was fake or expired because those same elites were now working together to procure contracts to take money from the state to become wealthy themselves. And people were dying. And so we started to look at violence, not just as the men with guns shooting at each other, but actually in more structural terms. Hospitals that catch on fire because their health and safety regulations aren't strong. Or in the case of Libya recently, dams that haven't had proper maintenance. So what we saw was while these elite bargains, while these political settlements effectively stopped casualties from civil war, they in many cases perpetuated more casualties in a less visible way through structural violence. And what I thought was one of the powerful things in the report was you talked about how the intra-elite bargains are about violence that's horizontal between elites. And the structural violence is the violence that's vertical between the large parts of the population that has to live there and the elites who exploit them and fail to deliver services to the population. Exactly. We've learned that these types of political settlements that seem pragmatic, that tend to reduce the direct horizontal violence are actually perpetuating it, you see that levels of corruption have stayed the same, and you see that human development in these countries has been poor. Child mortality, low life expectancies, these are all different ways in which people are dying more than they should because of corruption. Natasha, you come out of deep experience in the Syrian conflict. How does what Renaz just laid out relate to the kinds of things you've seen both in the Syria conflict, but more broadly, in your work in the Middle East and around the world? Yeah, I mean, first, I just want to commend you on the report. I think it provides a really helpful lens for viewing these problems. And John actually sent it to me immediately when it came out, because we had been talking specifically about these issues just within the narrow context of water security, where we have scholars and policymakers really laser focused on the potential for water wars or elite bargains on water, and not really looking at the structural violence that's inherent in everyday lives of of citizens. I think that what's helpful about this report is that we as human beings, I mean, we tend to understandably be focused on outbreaks of violence or handshakes between old men. That's what the media focuses on. But I really think that the Middle East is more defined by those silences in between that you're really trying to talk about. Because in those silences, people are really trying to survive in broken systems. Elites become entrenched. They take control of basic services. And they essentially become too big to fail. And so that's the situation that we have, not just in conflict-affected countries in the region, but I would argue all of the countries of the region, where you have you know, IMF deals with Tunisia, regardless of the human rights violations going on there, because people are really afraid of migration, of violent conflict, of anything else that could potentially follow. Yemen, in many cases, was an example of an effort to avoid the very small elite deals at the top. Yemen had a national dialogue process that was part of an effort to transition from Ali Abdullah Saleh, a dictator for decades, to a more popularly embraced regime. And yet, Yemen dissolved into civil war, reportedly in part because the Houthis and some southern groups, elites, felt they hadn't been dealt in enough. So, Fariyat, tell me, how do we think about that balance between elites can disrupt everything, but you don't want to merely bring in elites because then elites perpetuate their elite status? 
as a researcher, but also as a Yemeni, you can really trace everything back in Yemen to the same point of elite bargains. There was a new deal that was happening between elites, which was called the GCC initiative in Yemen, again between Saleh and the opposition parties. The NDC, as you said, in 2013 National Dialogue Conference was probably the first time this elite bargain was put into some sort of an end. But because it was a deal that did not include accountability, it governed unconditional immunity to Saleh. Then we witnessed after it a cycle of violence. The ready recipe for any headache, for any problem is, okay, let's bring the elites into the group. Let's have deal with them. That happened in 2018 in Aden by the Saudis when they brought their factions together. It was an elite deal. That happened again when they created the Presidential Leadership Council. And a similar process right now happening between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia, which is an elite deal in a different way. So, so let me ask, Renat, I mean, you have lived through Iraq's gyrations for the last 20 years. There are people with guns who are willing to disrupt. How do you make things move forward without co-opting them? I would focus on this idea and issue of impunity. These elites who come together and design these systems never give up their impunity. They keep it. Another important power they have is access to arms. In Iraq, if you don't have access to arms, you don't have a strong sort of foot to stand on. You can't negotiate politically. So these groups, you know, it's and that's the, true in Libya as well. In, in Libya and in, you know, in many countries, right? It's, it's coercive capital. You know, it's social power. The way that these states are designed isn't the kind of neo-Weberian state that has a monopoly over legitimate violence. It's much more an arena where different groups rely on their arms to negotiate politically. Violence is part of the elite bargain. So you've triggered me by using the word arena because that's a word that shows up a lot mm. in Ellen Lust's book, Everyday Choices. I was talking mm. with Ellen in this room a week ago about her book. The point of her book is that we're really used to dealing with sort of states as rational actors and international actors love dealing with state counterparts, except that within the state, there are a word she continues to refer to as non-state arenas of authority, a sphere of activity with clear membership goals and institutions where citizens, public service providers, and even state officials are members of various communities, such as religious orders, mm -hmm. family or kinship groups, ethnic communities, which make claims on them and shape their actions. How sh should we think about those operating simultaneously with rational state institutions or in place of rational state institutions? Natasha, in, in Jordan, you've seen all of these things come into play. Ellen Lust's book is this example of a Jordanian woman voting for a politician she doesn't like. I mean, we would see that as an irrational choice, but what makes that rational for her? What makes it rational for a Yemeni policeman, for example, to seek the permission of a sheikh before he arrests somebody, right? There's these other arenas of authority that take place. And that is more exacerbated, I think, during times of conflict, because people have to survive within this system, right? Like while we're busy as development agencies or governments or donors trying to strengthen institutions and often failing to do so, people are on the ground trying to survive and making these everyday choices, as Ellen points out. 
And I think that the people on the ground in, in Iraq and Syria, they have to go to that local militia commander. They have to go to that uncle that knows how to sort of pull strings for them, right? And when that becomes deeply entrenched, it is very difficult to untangle mm-hmm. and really ask people to trust institutions or a government that they've never been able to rely on. And I think that's what we're seeing across the Middle East, that this even this sort of fragile social contract that has existed for decades is really breaking down. And I think that is strengthening these other arenas or authorities in Yemen and in Iraq. I mean, really across the board, I think it's pretty notable in Lebanon, especially where the government has never really been strong mm-hmm. since the and Civil there's, War. And there's significant public support for precisely these elites because of what the elites provide that nobody else will right. or nobody else can. Speaking of Lebanon, it was probably the first in the region that launched elite bargain and based on uh, sectarian identity politics, which was the Taif Agreement. What happened there is not just the right now the collapse of the state, as we saw the new violence, all of that. But speaking of the absence of an accountability and how it empowered warlords and got them to hold the Lebanese people as a hostage, to me, it was like Saada, it was like Adan, it was like Abiyan. It really redefined the idea of a war inside my head. You know, it was always what we understood. It's a guns, as Renad is saying, but Lebanon, you know, it was a war of the elite, a war of bankers. And what's interesting is, you know, we're talking about elites and going back to this, but a lot of the elites don't actually sit in the government, right? They don't need to. In fact, they're more powerful outside. Governments are often staffed by prime ministers and presidents who play the role of what would be that sort of state. But really, the power of the state is outside these institutions. You can see that clearly in in many of these examples. What also becomes interesting in Lebanon, in Iraq, in a few places, is the nature of the protest movements that begin to emerge. These protest movements are no longer against a specific leader or against a specific party, but they're against the entire system. So in Lebanon, they say, which means all of them means all of them. Right. And Iraq, it's the same. We are against the political system. So this is a response to elite bargains. This is a response to these political settlements by the people who have diagnosed the problem head on. They're the ones who have figured it out. They've said it's not a party. It's not an ideology that we're against. It's not a sect or ethnicity. It's the elite. But when you have elections in these places, and we've seen this in elections in Jordan, we've seen it in elections in Kuwait, We've seen it in elections in Iraq that that people oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes vote for tribal representatives, elites, because people say as an individual, I'm isolated and weak. But as a member of a larger collectivity, somebody is looking out for me. So part of the elite bargain Hmm. is a sense of protection. And it's partly voters who are institutionalizing Hmm. this elite bargain. I think the problem, for example, in Yemen and in others, is because of the economic cycle that goes to the elite bargain. People are hostage, whether that's to the Houthis in Sana'a or to Hamas in Gaza or to Hashd in Iraq or to Hezbollah in Lebanon because the entire economic center and the entire breadwinning is still controlled by these elite bargains. And so if I people, can add to what Farah saying, another dimension, who's voting? What is voter turnout like, Hmm. right? So these social leaders, the tribal leaders, the politicians, they have a base and they'll get them out to vote. But a lot of these people don't vote in these countries because they, what's the point? They've learned. They try elections one time, two times. They realize elections only reinforce the same elite bargain. Groups that have won that were outside the elite pact have not succeeded in many of these countries. 
And so it's very interesting. These leaders, even though they're clearly not interested in democracy and accountability, the idea of an election, the legitimizing function that an mm-hmm. election serves is still important to them. This type of competitive authoritarianism that you're seeing across the region is important. They need to present themselves as democratic, even though they're not interested in actual mm-hmm. sort of accountability. So how do you shift the system? Because you're describing an entire system, which is self-perpetuating, which citizens acquiesce to, how, as an outside party, as a, a donor state, as an international organization, as an NGO, how do you dislodge that bargain? I do want to say two things, and I think they're back to the initial points Rinad was making and back to your point about how do you strike the right balance. Let's say, for example, in the Yemen case, if I go back to 2011 and there is a way to, do, to redo the GCC deal, what is the one element I would add into it? I would take the immunity aspect and make it conditional. So at least you can strike that moment, you become a pragmatist, you move forward and you make it conditional. Tomorrow you Saleh misbehave, we will sue you for 30 years and we will put you in jail. Instead of just a free pass to everyone who wanted to do that in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Lebanon. But I think that conditionality of trying to kind of swallow yesterday, but think of tomorrow, is extremely important. And the second part, which goes back into what the paper looks into stabilization and between elite bargains, I think a fundamental problem today with the international interventions, whether in Yemen or Palestine or Iraq or Western policy, is what you were saying earlier. Western diplomacy, which is still the dominant diplomacy in the world today, is built on a feudal system of a feudal thinking, a counterpart. What did this do ultimately in your policies in the region, in my opinion, whether that's the U.S. or the U.K.? You didn't end up recognizing groups like Hamas and the Houthis, for example, which is good, but you ended up normalizing with their tools. And that's even more dangerous, in my opinion, in the long term. Today, you cannot do a single aid in Sana'a without the Houthis going through them. So you're hostage to their aids, but you don't even get the privilege of having to engage with them or to recognize them. So... That is, I think, a fundamental rethinking that needs to happen in the international mechanism of interventions, not just in Yemen or the region, but globally. The only thing that I would add in terms of what can be done is not all the elites we're talking about are corrupt, and not Mm -hmm. all the people in these political systems are corrupt. In fact, when you map out these networks, you might find a node, an isolated person here or there who is a reformist, who is socially connected, who is absolutely devastated and disgusted by the corruption that's causing so much harm. But the one thing that all of these people tell us when we we interview them is they're alone and they're isolated. And alone they can't do anything and so they're stuck. So how then can international actors and those pursuing development programs and trying to build, say, institutions strengthen the connective tissues between these reformists who exist in these networks so can I challenge you a bit yeah. on that? Because I, I really want to interrogate that yeah. recommendation because I've heard it before. We know that political violence mm-hmm. is just embedded in the system, right? We know that these reform-minded technocrats or even elites, they exist. But there's this political violence at play, yeah. right? And a lot of the people that I've talked to in Iraq that are you know, just environmental activists are either exiled, arrested, mm-hmm. detained, or they're forced to play by the mm-hmm. rules, which doesn't really get them mm-hmm. very far, right? And I think that the issue with these years of cyclical violence is that human life becomes pretty cheap, 
right? I mean, in the years of apartheid, I had friends in South Africa that, you know, told me that people would get killed for a cell phone, right? So if you're challenging or threatening mm-hmm. millions of dollars in contracts, which is what you're talking about, right, for these elites, I think your life is going to be pretty cheap really quickly, right? And so I don't, I say this not to sort of admire the problem, but like, how do you get over that hurdle? Mm. And I would add sort of a second challenge to that, which is somewhat related, which is that we're entering a multipolar world where these people have protectors and benefactors Mm -hmm. within the region that provide military support. You're completely right that the risk is definitely there. I'll give you an example. There was a teenager in Iraq, Haider Zaidi, who tweeted the former head of the Al-Hajj al-Sha'bi, the Popular Mobilization Forces, was not a martyr but a spy. And the PMF commission managed to file a lawsuit that put this teenager in jail for some years. However, there was a campaign launched where protesters started protesting, where social media influencers used the hashtag, where some of these reformists in government pushed, where an MP pushed. And this campaign, these groups coming together to campaign collectively, got them out of jail. Now, this is obviously a small example, and it's very isolated. We're talking about going against impunity. So 100%, this is not something that's going to happen overnight, and it's going to take decades and decades. But we do think that carefully constructed not going after corruption head on, but looking at areas where these elites are susceptible. For example, in the healthcare, right? If you show that medicine is expired, or in Libya, for example, with, with what happens with dams, when you focus on corruption in very specific, coherent, strategic ways that affect people every day and create these everyday violence, the idea is can this at least strengthen these networks? But 100% you're right that the dangers in this are very real. But you know what? A lot of the people who we talk to, you know, you say, you know, in Jordan, many people want to leave. A lot of people are staying put. And they're practicing politics and everyday politics in the ways that they want to, not necessarily becoming an MP or voting, but doing things that they think could help push the reform. And it's about supporting them, I think. All right. So let me ask you a really hard question, which is let's apply all this to Gaza, which is likely to have some sort of political reconstruction over the next several years. How should the donor world think about the elite bargains that had entrenched Hamas in power? What's the role of a whole range of international donors in trying to engender a different future for Gaza where there's genuine accountability, where we don't have the kinds of structural violence which contribute to not only the the death of many Palestinian civilians in this past week, but the likely death of many Palestinian civilians in the weeks to come. I mean, I think this goes back to something you said at the beginning, which is what is conflict and what is post-conflict? I mean, Palestinians have been living through conflict nonstop. It's about not jumping to that post-conflict and let's bring reconstruction in, but continuing to consider that many people are still in conflict even when there is a ceasefire and addressing some of these structural violence points, something like the blockade, something like these issues of the health, water, education, these things that have continued to kill a disproportionate amount of Palestinians, tackling those as well so that there can actually be something resembling peace for all sides. I think that we need to admit that there's a problem in order to solve it, right? And I, I see being in D.C. for the past three years that there there is this sort of boomerang effect back to elite bargains, normalization, 
of ties between strong men mm-hmm. in the region. And that this is the easier way to deal with the region as the U.S. seeks to focus on other issues. And I think that this recent escalation shows that if you ignore the drivers of conflict, yes. that it will continue to rear its ugly head. And it's not just Gaza, it's also Syria, which you know, we're not even talking about it today, but there is an also an escalation in violence in the Northwest. Mm. And that shouldn't be surprising to us. And so I think that the U.S. administration, especially in the case of Gaza, because it does have leverage within that conflict, needs to acknowledge that normalization of Arab countries with Israel does not sort of resolve the underlying structural violence that you're talking about, right? And that will continue to rear its ugly head. And it's like a transnational elite bargain. Right, right, exactly. Who are the actors mm. who can engage with Gazans beyond elites who can lead to a different future? Who are the core people and what do you need them to do in this post-conflict environment to get Gaza to a different place. Our director, Dr. Sanab Bakir, just published a piece this last week about this, how the regional countries should take more leadership in that. And I think that is probably right, not just in Palestine and Gaza, but everywhere. I agree with it because for one simple reason, power and obviously also peace, it's about perception. When you had the Abraham Accords, you thought, okay, the perception was you have the big guys in the room, everything is solved. And you had an illusion perception that these guys can also control everything. The best possible shot, I believe, we have is to create solidarities and the conversations and dialogues around topics. So, for example, in Yemen, I think this has managed very well, something called the Mothers of Abductees, which was an association that was created by a bunch of mothers who lost their sons in the Yemen war right now as hostages or prisoners. And what that did is it created a national, across-sectarian, across-geographical solidarity. My son. Whether my son, you know, is taken by the Houthis or the STC or the Emiratis or the Saudis or anyone. So having conversations is probably a better shot that we can create solidarity around it, overgo the elite bargain, and try to have some sort of a thing for the people in this entire sense. Can I just say one thing back to Gaza? As we're looking at these normalization deals, what I had heard from many diplomats, including Ambassador Jeff Feldman, over the years, even before the normalization deals sort of took shape, was that a lot of Gulf countries were paying lip service to the Palestinian cause, and they really wanted to normalize with Israel for their own interests, right? And I think we can all sort of agree upon that. I think this changes the dynamics a bit and makes them have to do more than pay lip service, potentially, if they want to move forward. And so how do you use these elite bargains in a way so that you at least extract something for the people mm-hmm. within these bargains, right? And I think that Gulf states and other Arab countries are realizing that their people actually still care about this issue mm-hmm. and that it will continue to come back. And, you know, potentially they have the power to work with Israel on sort of reducing the structural violence and defanging why Hamas came to power sort of in the first place, right? That's complicated, especially now, but I think that the importance of that is incredibly highlighted now as well. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank Renad Mansour, one of the co-authors of Rethinking Political Settlements in the Middle East and North Africa. From Chatham House, Fadil Muslimi, one of his colleagues at Chatham House, my colleague, Natasha Hall, an expert on Syria and many other things. Thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you for our next program. Have a good night. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Babel. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.